Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This is going to give us a good idea as to what the book of Proverbs is kind of all about. I just came across it. And uh, even though we've been in it for a while and we've been trying to make application, um, this, this little video is going to give us a good picture of it. So just take a look at this. There are three books in the Bible that have come to be called the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And all of these books are addressing the same set of questions. What kind of world are we living in? And what does it look like to live well in this world? So how to be good at life. Yeah. So each of these books tackles these questions from a unique perspective. And it's important to understand all of them to get a fully biblical perspective on the good life. So as a thought experiment, you could actually imagine each of these books as a person. So Proverbs would be like this brilliant young teacher, and Ecclesiastes the sharp middle-aged critic, and Job would be this weathered old man who's seen a lot in his day. We're going to start by meeting the book of Proverbs, the brilliant young teacher. And she's not just smart, she's smart about everything, work, relationships, sex, spirituality. She has incredible insights. Things you wouldn't see on your own. Yeah, she would be the perfect friend to have around when you need really specific advice. So what makes her so smart? Well, Proverbs can see things that most people don't see. She believes that there's an invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people in how they should live. And you can't see it, just like you can't see gravity, but it affects everything that we do. So what's this force? Well, in Hebrew, it's called chokhmah. And it usually gets translated into English as wisdom. It's an attribute of God that God used to create the world. And chokmah has been woven into the fabric of things and how they work. So wherever people are making good or just or wise decisions, they're tapping into chokmah. And whenever someone's making a bad decision, they're working against chokmah. Right, or as it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the waywardness of fools will destroy them, but the one who listens to wisdom lives in security. So it's like a moral law of the universe. Yeah, it's a cause-effect pattern, and no one can escape it. And Proverbs personifies all of this as a woman. Yeah, Lady Wisdom. Right, and she roams around the earth calling out, making herself available to anyone who's willing to listen to her and to learn. Which leads to the second thing Proverbs believes, that anyone can access and interact with wisdom and use it to make a beautiful life for yourself or for others. You can create with it like a designer. Yes, in fact, chokmah in Hebrew isn't simply intellectual knowledge. The word is also used to describe a skilled artisan who excels at their craft, like woodworking or stonemasonry. So you show you possess chokmah when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. Okay, that makes sense. So let's do this. Let's go find some wisdom. But before you do, Proverbs has one more really important thing to consider. Chokmah isn't some impersonal force. It's an attribute of God himself. And so in Hebrew thought, your journey to becoming wise has to begin with what Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord. It's this healthy respect for God's definition of good and evil. And true wisdom means learning those boundary lines and not crossing them. 
Now, all those ideas you just unpacked are in chapters one through nine in Proverbs. But when I think of the book of Proverbs, I think of the collection of sayings, the Proverbs themselves. Tell me about those. Yeah, those are what you find in chapters 10 on to the end of the book. It's a collection of hundreds and hundreds of proverbs about any and all aspects of life. And Chokhmah gets applied to them, resulting in this wise guidance to help you find a path towards success and no matter what you do. If I design my life with these sayings, life is going to be good. Yeah, or as Proverbs puts it, it'll give health to your bones, prosperity, a long, rich life. Which is a really big claim. But you can see how it's often the case. Wise people, they tend to do better. Things usually work out well for them in life. And so that is the promise and the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. So tonight, please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 25. And we're going to begin, as, as you've been following along with us over the past several months, you've noticed that the book of Proverbs is kind of broken down into different sections and um, uh, with different, uh, like, they, like they showed in that video, the first nine chapters really um, were speaking of wisdom and, um, and all of those attributes of God that um, are revealed through wisdom. And the rest of the book really is those sayings or those passages that we kind of apply to our life. Now, in this next section from Proverbs 25 through chapter 29, we're given 137 more passages of wisdom from the lips of King Solomon. Now, some, some of them were written by other men. Some of them were compiled by Solomon. Now, these were compiled under the leadership of one of the better kings of Israel during the time of the uh, divided kingdom, then that's King Hezekiah. And his reign was from 715 to about 686 B.C. Um, when they went into captivity. So these dates correspond to when King Hezekiah desired to bring revival into the land of Judah. And remember, after Solomon's death in 931 B.C., the nation of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. If you put up that first slide about or the kings of Israel. So I rated them. And you can see most of them are red, which is bad or very bad, uh, except for Jehu, which is not good, but better than the rest. So, <laughs> so it doesn't give a real pretty picture of the kings of Israel. But go to the next slide, and we'll see here the kings of Judah. And we start to see some yellow, some that are a little uh, like pink, which is not that bad. Um, we, see, uh, we see some good kings. We see a devilish queen. We see the worst in Manasseh. Ahaz was wicked. Um, and we see one of the best, which is Hezekiah. He's kind of tied with Josiah as one of the best kings of Israel. None of them were perfect. Some of them had better traits than others. Some of them led the nation into idolatry. And some of them, like Hezekiah, tried to actually bring revival back into the nation. So uh, some were bad. Some were mostly bad. Some were not as bad. I like how they describe them because it's kind of how we compare ourselves to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person, but I'm better than that person. 
Um, it's really not uh, how God sees us, but um, you know they're compared to their peers. So some get a better mark than um, than maybe a totally wicked king. And uh, it's interesting. The reason why I wanted to show you that is because as we look at these next this next section in the book of Proverbs, I want to give us sort of a little history lesson on to why King Hezekiah wanted to uh, bring revival back to the nation of Israel and why he's considered one of the better kings. So I'm going to just go through part of Second Chronicles. You can follow along up on the screen as we just give a little history as to what King Hezekiah was all about. It says in verse 1 of chapter 29 in 2 Chronicles, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And look at verse 2, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. So that showed right there that he was one of the better kings. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Imagine that that there was garbage now strewn in the, in the house of the Lord, that they had to actually clean it out. Verse 6, For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of lo the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, the divided kingdom, the two, the two kingdoms, and he has given them up to trouble, to, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be neg negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. So he's trying to prepare now back the, all of the, uh, the ordinances and all of the sacrifices um, that were supposed to be done perpetually in the house of the Lord to bring back those things. Then in verse 12, uh, 15, uh, then the Levites arose and they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord. Notice this wasn't just the king speaking. This was the king speaking at the direction of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of our Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it to the brook Kidron and they threw it in the water. So King Hezekiah, verse 20, rose early, gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. Then he commanded the priests and the sons of Aaron to offer them on the altar of the Lord, verse 21. Verse 21. 
down to verse 25. And he stationed the Levites at the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. So he got the worship team together. So he had all of the implements and all of the things for the sacrifices, for the offerings to the Lord. And then he brought the worship team in. And it says in verse uh, 26, the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer burnt offerings on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they went back to the Psalms and they started to to sing the Psalms to the Lord back in the house of God. And then down to verse 35 and 36, just to close it up. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. How awesome is that? That this king saw that the people were so far from God that his greatest desire was to bring revival back to the nation of Israel. And he started in the house of the Lord, got it cleaned up, and got all of the things prepared to go back and to start to worship the Lord according to the way he had prescribed. You know, national revival is very similar to personal revival. They both happen the same way. So to make personal application of this, we need to take a few steps and one of them was mentioned in the video, and that is to have proper fear and reverence of the Lord. That's the first step to revival, whether it's personal or in a nation. And then to cleanse the worldly things out of your life. That would be the next step. And then thirdly, go back to obedience to God. Go back to worship. Go back to prayer. Go back to that personal relationship with the Lord and you will see revival take place in your life now what does that mean for us tonight well interesting that King Hezekiah compiled these last uh, several um, chapters in the book of Proverbs spoken through Solomon and given to his uh, his men in his in his government and he compiled them because he knew that in order to have revival in the land, they needed godly wisdom. And just like us, isn't it true that if we want to live godly lives, and the kind of the overall title to the book of Proverbs is living wisely in God's world. If we want to live wisely in God's world, then we need to know his wisdom. And we, to, we need to apply it to our lives. So we're going to jump in to Proverbs 25, and let's see what the Lord has for us tonight. Verses 1 through 3. These, are also, these also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, 
but the glory of kings to search it out. As for the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the, king, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. So we see here the characteristics of earthly kings compared to the king of kings. God's ways are always higher than our ways. God's ways are always better than our ways. So it would be wise for earthly kings, for earthly rulers to seek God's will, to seek God's counsel, to seek God's wisdom in order to rule according to his ways. And isn't that our prayer? Shouldn't that be our prayer for our government leaders, that they would seek God to surround themselves with people who will point them in the direction of godly wisdom, point them in the direction of the scriptures and to rule and to make decisions on that basis. So that can be our prayer. And we always should be praying for our leaders. Verses 4 and 5. Take away the dross from silver and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. These verses speak of the wisdom in ruling a nation where wickedness is replaced by righteousness. Just, you know, the picture of the silversmith, the one who's refining the metal. You know, he refines the silver to remove all of the impurities. A wise ruler will seek to remove evil from the land and replace it with justice and with decency. That would be a really wise leader. And our, we pray again that our leaders would take, would take this counsel to remove the wicked things, to remove the evil from the land and to replace it with justice and with decency. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So this here is a call to humility. You know, how many times throughout the Bible are we called to humble ourselves? And how different, I think, I think it's in the Bible so many times because we realize how difficult it is, really, to humble ourselves. We want to exalt ourselves, and there are so many verses that tell us that the humble will be exalted, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled. This is showing us kind of how humiliating it would be for someone to elevate themselves to a place of honor, right, before men, and then to be told to sit in a place of lower esteem. You know, that's humiliating. It's similar to what it says in Luke chapter 14 in verse 8. It says, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and, and, and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Imagine sitting in a place of honor and having your host come over and say, Could you, would you mind switching places with this person? He's more honorable than you. How humiliating would that be, right? Think about it practically. But when you are invited, verse 10, 
and go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'd rather, much rather be exalted by the Lord than to be humbled. I'd rather be exalted if I place myself in a place of humility. Verses 8 through 10. Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. Now, we read those verses. Did anyone think of Judge Judy when they, when they read those verses? Because I, wa- I watch these courtroom shows. They're very interesting sometimes. And a lot of the judges actually have some really good counsel, really good advice for the people. But how embarrassed sometimes I am for them because they're kind of airing all of their personal stuff on television, you know, to millions of people. So... I think I think of this, this these verses here. Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? You know, and, and that's what I think of. So this is just common sense that we can apply to our lives. That we should never be quick to contend with somebody in a matter that might be easily settled if you just went and talked it out. You know, how many times do we just av- avoid that conversation that may actually settle the matter and we instead we ec- escalate it to, a s- to another step? You know, if you're quick to bring a dispute to a public proceeding, you may find your reputation gets ruined in that. So, you know, this is just to be thoughtful, common sense, kind of take your time with those things. If you have a dispute with somebody... Go and talk to them about it. Don't rush into, you know, a public proceeding like that. Verses 11 and 12, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, like an earring of gold and an, enorm- and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. So the beauty that's described here is twofold. It's the right words spoken at the right time. You know, and sometimes we may have the right words to say to someone, but it's just not the right time to say them. We're not wise in choosing that. Other times it might be the perfect time to speak to someone, but we instead we choose the wrong words. So this the beauty here that's spoken of is when those things come together. You know, the right words at the right time. And really it really takes God's wisdom in order to make that happen because, you know, a lot of times we just won't have, uh, you know, the right wisdom to do that, but God will, God will speak to us in that. And I love what it says here too because it's very interesting. The right words at the right time can be words of encouragement and blessing, but they can also be words of rebuke and correction. And both will be well-received when they're done at the right time with well-chosen words, with wisdom. It's 
Very interesting how that works. Proverbs 15.23 speaks of this too. It says, A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. In due season. So just the right, right words at the right time. Verse 13, like the, sn- like the cold of snow in the time of harvest, is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his master. So this is just how bo- about how nice it is to receive good news. You know, especially in a time where you might be struggling, when you might be in a trial. You know, that refreshing snow in, in a harvest time. So it's like a cool wind blowing over, you know, the fields when they're out there, you know, harvesting the crops in the heat of the day and that just that cold, refreshing wind that blows through, how, you know, welcoming that is. So it's, it's refreshing when good news comes to you and it's greatly appreciated by the one who receives it. Verse 14, whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. So kind of self-explanatory here, but it's talking about false pride, how meaningless it is, how empty it is. You know, that we need to be careful that we're not just becoming loud and boisterous and uh, you know, braggadocious and you know, always talking about you know, ourselves and always boasting over things, but, it has to, but there's no true substance there. You know, sometimes people will actually make up for shallowness um, in their life with like kind of an animated personality. It's not always the case, but this is speaking of boasting falsely. So saying, it's really somebody that's saying things that aren't matching up to reality. You know, so it's, you know, it's empty, it's meaningless. Verse 15, by long forbearance, a ruler is is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. So this speaks about patience, you know, and, you know, that's something that I think we all could use some practice in, just being more patient. It's a very attractive feature in a person, patience. This is not the pushy person. This is not the extra persistent person. This is not the one that's trying to convince somebody to see it their way. This speaks of a soft-spoken person, a patient person. And sometimes that's really the best way to get someone to see your side of things is in a soft-spoken and a patient way. Verses 16 and 17. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you will be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he becomes weary of you and hate you. Now, I put these two together because I think they go together. Because it, this is giving us wisdom in self-control, wisdom in moderation. You know, it's wise to use moderation in all things, even in good things. You know, it, it speaks here of honey. Honey is a good thing. It's nutritious. It's delicious. It's a good thing. But you eat enough of it, and you're eventually going to get sick. So Solomon is saying here to be moderate, to be temperate in all things, because even overindulging in good things, it can become too much. It can become even disgusting. Um, I like what Matthew Henry's commentary says of this verse. 
He writes, The pleasures of sense lose their sweetness by the excessive use of them and become nauseous as honey which turns sour in the stomach. It is therefore our interest as well as our duty to use them with sobriety. So just with moderation. And so verse 17 you know, when it comes to visiting friends, visit, visiting neighbors, we need to be sensible in how much we visit and how long we stay. You know, we don't want to become sort of nauseous in their, in their eyes because we're always over there. Uh, you know, the previous verse, verse 16, speaks of becoming sickened by eating too much honey. We don't want to nauseate our friends by overstaying our welcome, do we? So it's a good thing to visit. It's a good thing to, you know, to, to visit your friends and to, you know, uh, uh, even invite them over, but know kind of the limits to that. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. So this is a warning, you know, to, uh, to be trustworthy, not to be deceitful in dealing with other people. And, you know, the lies that we, can, that we would tell about somebody can destroy their reputation. Just as a weapon, you know, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow can destroy the body. So we want to be very, you know, careful that we don't, um, you know, bear false witness. You know, that's one of the commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so, um, you know, Solomon just kind of expounds on that a little bit. And we see that a lot in the book of Proverbs, you know, teaching us, you know, to be trustworthy in what we say um, to people and about people. Verse 19, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. So kind of get the picture in our mind, you know, um, you know, if we put our faith in someone that we think is faithful and they turn out to be unfaithful, you know, we'll fall in those efforts because we're putting our trust in something that's not trustworthy. It's like putting pressure on a broken tooth, right? You're not going to be able to do it m long before it completely falls apart or a disjointed foot. It just won't hold up. So, you know, it's about putting our faith in someone who kind of pretends that they're being faithful or pretends that they're responsible, but they turn out to be the opposite of that. And when they're called upon in time of need, what happens? They prove to be unreliable. So, you know, just using wisdom, you know, if we're going to put our faith in, in someone to make sure that they, their yes is yes and their no is no, that they can be trustworthy, they can be depended on and that they can be reliable in what they say. Verse 20, like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, and like vinegar on soda, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So I had to kind of look, uh, do a little research on this, because it's a little bit hard to figure out here. We know what vinegar and baking soda do. They produce that... Um, that volcano that we did in our sixth grade science class, right? It kind of explodes. 
So how does that relate to singing songs to a heavy heart? Well, it's basically when we uh, don't show compassion on someone who's going through a difficult time. When we're kind of flippant with them if they're, if they're having a time of grief or a time of sorrow. You know, when we maybe we joke um, or we think we can sing a joyful song or, or something to cheer them up, but really we're being un- insensitive to their feelings, t- insensitive to their suffering. So this it kind of gives us pause to really reflect on our relationships with others and what would be best for that person that we have a relationship with who's going through a really difficult time. So it's like taking away someone's coat in the winter or pouring vinegar on baking soda. It's turning a, s- a serene and a, and a peaceful situation into turmoil. You know, it's just, it's going to make matters worse. So, you know, that chemical reaction when you mix vinegar and baking soda, you know, it just, it will explode eventually. So, you know, we just need to make sure that we're being compassionate and not always, you know, with a joke or or insensitive to people, especially when they're going through a time of grieving. You know, we always will have an opportunity to minister to someone who's going through a difficult time. That's just the way of life. You know, we have relationships with people and we know that eventually, you know, somebody's going to be hurting. You know, it says in the Bible that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we should mourn with those who mourn. You know, so there's there's a kind of a time and a place, you know, for that. And, you know, not to be insensitive when we have someone that we could really be ministering you know, compassion and, and comfort too. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. So coals of fire don't sound so great. Uh, in this context, it's actually a good thing. We can sometimes see the disposition of somebody who we may consider our enemy, we can see that kind of breaking down, um, becoming softened as we show kindness to them instead of wrath. You know, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. This is your enemy. In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. So you have to take the context and know that that phrase means that it's something good. Because the Lord will reward you. God is pleased when we do that. God is pleased when we, when we bless our enemies. In contrast to that, you know, we see you know, several times in the Psalms, wh- we see what we would call imprecatory Psalms, which are Psalms or prayers that are um, sort of against those who would be coming against us. In Psalm 140, verses 9 and 10, this is kind of the the other side of it. It says, As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they will not rise up again. So that's the other side of heaping hot coals on someone. That's praying for destruction, praying for God to uh, avenge those who were coming against him. But, you know, think about David 
And, you know, he had uh, people coming against him for no reason many times. And so he wrote these psalms. And I would hope that they were more uh, not about him seeking revenge, but about pointing out God's displeasure with wickedness. You know, Jesus taught in Luke 6, verse 27 and 28, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. So here, you know, we don't wa really want to utilize the imprecatory <laughs> psalms. We want to uh, pray that God would open their eyes, pray for a blessing upon them, and, and to see if God can change their hearts. You know, look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. In verses 17 through 21, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, I love that little phrase that he puts in there. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You know, we have control to an extent over the peace that we have with others. We can't control them, but we can certainly control ourselves. He, he goes on, Paul goes on, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he goes on and quotes this proverb. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Great lessons for us, you know, as we just interact with people in this world. There are going to be times where people are coming against us. And so we just need to have good wisdom as to how we should properly deal with that in a way that God would be honored. In a way that God would be honored. Verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. So this is that cause and effect that we see kind of throughout the book of Proverbs. You know, and for the most part, these things will take place. Sometimes they don't. But for the most part, we see this cause and effect journey through our life. If we do one thing, this will probably happen. If we do another thing, this will probably happen. Now, this verse, it seems on the, on the face of it is kind of simple, but it can have actually two different meanings. One of them is as the north wind drives the rain away, we can drive away insulting words by our righteous anger toward that kind of speech. You know, we should not accept people backbiting another person. So we ha can have righteous anger or righteous indignation toward that kind of, of speech. And there can be that cause and effect. We could drive that away because we won't accept it. And that's a good thing. The other application is equally true. And that's that we can see it played out where the north br wind actually brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue the angry looks there then are the face of the victim of the, s of, the, of, of the slander. 
So the angry person is the one who's receiving the uh, slanderous words against him. And, you know, we, we see that too. You know, we see that, you know, if you're, being, if you're offended by someone, you know, then you can drive that stuff away by showing them that it, bo it bothers you. You know, you to go to them and say, listen, I, that's, that's offensive to me, what you're telling me. And you would hopefully drive that away. So it's true either way we look at it, that verse. Verse 24, it's reminiscent of a couple of other Proverbs, but I'll read it here. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than a house shared with a contentious woman. First uh, Proverbs 19.13 says, A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. I remember when we studied that, I said it was like that, that water torture, just that drip, 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 drip. I, I didn't really make too much comment on that. I don't think I should. Proverbs 21, verse 9, Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. So it's basically the same the same um, sense, the same uh, meaning to it. You can go and figure it out on your own. Verse 25, as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. So here we see again just how refreshing good news is when it comes to us. You know, just how many times we wait, just wait for good news. Some people go to the mailbox every day just waiting for good news. I don't know what what they might be waiting for, uh, you know, a letter from a friend or, you know, a check from a long-lost relative or something. But it's refreshing when we get good news. Like, uh, same as in verse 13, like the cold of snow in time of harvi harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his master. So we just see how, you know, how, how that works out. It's practical. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. You know, this, this is kind of sad to me. You know, when Christians fall into sin, the wicked always take the opportunity to harden against the things of God. When Christians fall into sin, especially in a public way, it's an opportunity for their testimony to become tainted. We don't want our testimony to be tainted. A person who doesn't know the Lord will look at us and, and they'll become hardened to the things of God. They'll say, well, you know, what are they talking about? Their speech doesn't line up with their actions. It's being, you know, I, they're a hypocrite. How many times have you heard that? People say about Christians that they're hypocrites. Notice how the world reacts, right, when a pastor falls, you know, whether it's to adultery or to pornography you know how many people who may have come to christ are turned away from him because of that it muddies the water really for the unbeliever because he sees one thing and he's told another verse 27 is not good to eat much honey so to seek one's own glory is not glory so again this is the second time that Solomon uses this word, the, the word honey, you know, a good thing, a nutritious thing, a delicious thing, but something that if it's overused, it loses the goodness of it. You know, it's okay to be confident. 
It's okay, it's natural to seek the approval of others, but when that becomes our passion, when that becomes our focus on life, it'll have actually the opposite effect than what we desire. Our self-glory will actually turn into self-shame because of that, because that's really the main focus of everything we do. So, again, e even a good thing done, you know, over overdone can bring the wrong results. The last verse, uh, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So, again, this speaks of a lack of restraint. One of the um, fruits of the spirit is self-control. You know, there are certain things we need to have self-control over our own spirit, self-control over our own tendencies, or else we will become vulnerable to temptation. We will become vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. It's like a city with broken down walls. There's no protection anymore when we don't control our own, our own spirit. You know, always good practical things that we hear in the book of Proverbs, things that we can just take and we can directly apply to our lives in relationships, in looking at ourselves in our relationship with the Lord, you know, and in, and in all aspects of life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. Let's